Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. I'm Aaron. And I'm Bree. And today we have with us, we have the Joanne Rock, everyone. We are so happy to have you here with us. How has your 2022 been so far? Oh, it's been great. It's, it's been a great year. I just had a great vacation. I uh, feel rested and recharged, and I'm excited to be here. Well, again, we are so happy to have you here. We, you should have seen us when we saw that your com- confirmation message that you you wanted to come on and talk to us. <laughs> I love the memes and romance. gifts that were exchanged. The yeah. gifts that were exchanged. <laughs> Thank you. Well, are you ready to get in some icebreakers? I'm ready. All right. If you came with a warning label, what would it say? Just because I'm nice, that doesn't mean I'm a pushover. Yes. Mm, great. Yeah. Great. I, I think, that. you know, I think it's, um, I wear a lot of pink and I love the girly girl thing and I have a soft kind of voice. Uh, the first time actually my husband ever called me on the phone, he said, can I talk to your big sister? Which reminds me <laughs> that I have kind of a youthful or younger than I am kind of sounding voice, a little voice. And I, I think that sometimes when I get started, people view me a certain way because of those things. And um, mm-hmm. I think just kindness in general sometimes is overlooked and yeah. and people think that's not a strength and that that is not so. Very much agree. What was your first job? Farmhand. Um, my father had a farm when I was uh, kind of middle teens and um, for years. So picking tomatoes and um, and getting a lot of sunburns was my first job. And I can tell you, I didn't love it. And it's funny, I, I romanticize it now. Looking back, that kind of life, you know, family working together, there's a lot that sounds ideal about it. And the fresh food was great. But at yeah. the time, I highly resented having to pick tomatoes instead of going to hang out with my friends. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so I have to ask. Do you love eating tomatoes now? <laughs> I do now. I love it so much more than I did at the time because okay. it had a lot of negative associations for me because it was hard, really hard work. And um, But now I go to the store, oh, this isn't a tomato. I scoff at that tomato. <laughs> you know, if only I could have my father's homegrown tomatoes now, but yeah. the farm is no more. It's funny how that, you know, we're so nostalgic for lives that we couldn't wait to escape right, from right. once upon a time, yep, you know? Yep. Yeah. And that's every romance heroine, isn't it? Going yeah. back home, yeah. seeing it through new eyes. <laughs> well, besides books, what was one of your teenage obsessions? I I had a lot of teenage obsessions. I think teens are the well, time. Well, this is your show. Tell us everything. <laughs> yes. um, mythology. I was super obsessed yeah. with mythology. I would go to the library with the big basket and I wasn't satisfied until the basket was stuffed full with books to come home with. And I had this idea that I wanted a oh traditional kind of liberal arts education. You know, keep in mind, I'm 12 and 13 and 14 here. I wanted a planning um, for the you know, future. Right. <laughs> so I would have I would give myself like um, I'd make up a syllabus for the summer and one summer it would be mythology. And then I would stu- study ballet and then I would study art and just, you know, super goofy. But I would make a chart of all the Greek gods and goddesses and how they were all related. And then I superimposed on top of all the Greek ones, the ones that were the counterparts for Roman and, you know, lines going to all of them. I, I just love that. And it was 
you know, mythology appears in our literature so much. And I was already reading literature that had all kinds of references. And I wanted to, you know, where's the source material? I wanted to learn about that. So that was one of my weird, fun obsessions. Look at you doing romance novel writer research. Absolutely. Way before you were writing. Yes. Yes. The bones for all of our stories. There they are. (laughs) There's something about the, uh, the, you know, the the pagan gods of history, especially the Roman and, and Greek ones that really appeals to like the, the young adult audience. I remember being oh, yeah. very obsessed with it as well. I, I, I'm not sure what exactly what it is, but it seems to be a somewhat universal thing. Well, I think, you know, the idea coming up in a, a culture where our traditional, uh, my, I should just say, kind mm-hmm. of Christian orienting was in this kind of benevolent God to get introduced to these gods and goddesses that were like us yeah. and have terrible traits is really appealing. You know, it's, it's kind yeah. of funny yeah. that they, that, um, you know, God's behaving badly, that we could get to see what that looked like. And, um, and they had all this power and could do whatever they want. And they used it in horrible ways is, is kind of funny and um, relatable at the same time. And that there were gods for different things. I think that's what I've always found. Right. Just so fascinating. And they're, you know, they're depicted in such fun ways that they, you know, Athena has the owl and they, you know, they have their kind of little totems that go with them. And that that was really appealing to it's very visual. What's one memorable way you've celebrated one of your book releases? I just celebrated release number 100 with a trip to Montana to study my, my Western settings to make sure I get all my Western settings just right. But also just to have a lot of fun. That's the best work vacation. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. Pretty pleased with that. I, you know, in a way, it was hard to be away from my laptop when the book released because part of me just wanted to sit there and, you know, soak up all the fun of social media and and getting to enjoy that. But it's important to take breaks. I have learned that. Um, I love my job so much that I can get obsessed with that and spend way too much time on it. And and it is important for longevity purposes to step away from it, to, you know, to recharge, to go see the world, see people, get inspired by romance out there uh, and, and come home rejuvenated. So I've been trying to do that more the past couple of years. But yeah, I saw, I did a national park trip. I went to Grand Tetons and Yellowstone and Glacier National Park, just back to back and had a really over ambitious itinerary and hiked like a mad woman. And uh, eight days into it, I was so exhausted. (laughs) So tired, like who planned this trip? I planned it like I was 20 and I am not. Um, So I was a little bit exhausted from it, but it, it was fun. And, you know, even once I got really, really tired, it was still great to just roam around in the car and stop and take pictures out the window because there's something gorgeous around every corner. I loved it. Well, I'm just saying I wouldn't be upset if we had a desire novel with some national parkage going on. (laughs) I I don't know how you would swing it with the editors. You know, they may have questions, but I would read it. I'm I'm definitely my series for next year is in Montana. So I went there knowing this is the place. I, you know, okay. we <laughs> traveled all around outside of Glacier Park just to feel what Montana was like and it's it's so beautiful. It, it is just so stunningly gorgeous. But all the all the farms and um and and ranches to to see all of those things with my own eyes was really fun. But yeah, it's all going in a book. Excellent. We can't wait. <laughs> Pre-ordering now. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, we saw online that you spent time teaching writing, film, and fiction at different colleges. What inspired this career path? And out of the three subject areas, did you have a particular favorite uh, you like to teach? It's interesting. I started teaching uh kind of as a stopgap, because even then I knew I wanted to write romance. I started, and I was just listening to the Jane Porter podcast where she talks about writing while she was in um, in college, and I did the same thing. I My first day of graduate school for my English degree, I sat in the quad feeling very collegiate. I opened up my notebook, and I started the first page of my first romance novel because it seemed like the thing to do now that I was on a college campus to write my novel. Um, and then I went to the first class, and I realized, wow, I got to put away the book, and, and I need to concentrate on what they're trying to teach me because this is a lot. So I didn't get back to that novel until later in my program. But I I knew that I loved it, that I loved writing romance, that it was going to be something really fun to do. But it takes a while to make the publishing world believe that I was going to write great books. Uh, so I taught to kind of fill that time because really, I just wanted to crawl inside a book, whether it was writing a book, teaching a book, talking about a book, um, stories, you know, with film, that's books in a visual way. Um, it's, it's all storytelling. And I just loved that. So that is so um, cool. Yeah, that's why I did that. And, and I would say that film was one of my favorites to teach because, um, because of the visual medium, you know, it's books brought to life. And that's something that as a writer, I don't get to see, I don't, I don't have that piece, I can visualize it in my mind, but no filmmaker has come and said, Oh, we want to make a, a story out of one of your books. But I really I liked teaching film and thinking about the stories behind it. I remember in particular, teaching the uh, film The Innocence with Deborah Kerr, which is a, a our car, which is a 19th 61 film that's a retelling of Henry James' Turn of the Screw. And so, you know, that's a book that I had studied in high school. I had studied it in college and then to see it brought to life. And it's been brought to life by lots of filmmakers. Same with, you know, Wuthering Heights and any of the Austins and, and Bronte kind of novels. Um, and it's just fun to see a book that that you've read come come to life. I'm not one of these purists that feels like, oh, they didn't do it right. Yeah. And, you know, especially <laughs> with classic novels, they can do it a hundred different ways. I mean, that's that's the joy of of story. You, you can bend it and shape it and, and it can be different things. And I'm okay with that. I like seeing what a different artist brings to the table with a story that I already know. Yeah. Did you get to pick the films for the curriculum or, or no? You yes. did? Okay. Yep. So that, that was that was really fun that I, I got to do that. Well, we love hearing romance origin stories. So can you share with us how you became a romance reader? Well, um, yes. My my mom, both my parents are huge readers all the time. They had books. If they weren't playing Scrabble or crossword puzzles, you know, very word-focused kinds of things, they were reading. So books were a part of my life from an early age. That's what you do. That's how you relaxed. You picked up a book. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. But I, a lot of my mother's books were, you know, in the 70s, kind of gothic romance. I have this vision of the woman in the nightgown running down the cliffs in the big castle behind the Phyllis Whitney's yes, and Victoria exactly. Holtz. Yeah. And when I, I wrote a historical novel at one point and I, there was a heroine on the cover and a castle in the background. And I just felt like, oh, I've arrived. You know, I, I've written a story where there's a castle in the background. And there's like, well, All the, the lights whole are all reason for one. <laughs> So I, you know, she read romance and eventually I picked up romance, loved a romance. There's 
just something so wonderful about romance. Yeah. Well, according to what we can see online, your first book, Learning Curbs with Harlequin Temptation Line, released in January 2020, uh, 20, 2002, excuse me. What was your journey to becoming published like? So hard. It, it is so hard. And again, just listening to Jane chat about, about it in... Um, her show, she talked about how different the industry was then because there were only so many ways to get published. There there wasn't an option to self-publish something, which I absolutely would have done at, at some point in the years that I wrote book after book after book trying to sell. Um, but I knew you know, I just kept writing new books. Some authors massage the book that they have, but that wasn't me. It was, you know, you don't like this one. Ah, we'll throw that one away. Let, let's write something new. I'll write exactly what you want. And I would get all my hopes up for that one. They wouldn't like that one. Well, let me tell you, I'll, I'll fix all those problems and I'll <laughs> do this different thing. At one point they wanted action. You know, my first book, there's not enough action. It's too quiet. So the next story began with, um, it's a Scott story and he's got a battering ram and he is, you know, battering his way into the castle. That's oh, action. Love it. My God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was my kind of overcorrecting every time. Um, I, I gave them what they asked for. I sure did. And it took me probably seven books, full length novels before I sold one. And um and actually, it, I made the switch from I was writing historicals when I first started, and I eventually sold um, to Harlequin Temptation, Learning Curves. And um, it was just easier when I when I sat down to write it. I had less, the voice, I think, was, was just so there because my voice was strongly contemporary. And as much as I loved historicals, you have to step into different shoes. It's a whole different thing to, to write in a convincing historical voice. So... Um, especially while I was getting my my writing legs under me, it helped to to streamline all of the things that I had to learn in order to be good at the job. And uh, Sexy Short Contemporary was just a great fit for me. The book, I don't want to say it wrote itself, but it just, it wrote so quickly. My critique partner, Catherine Mann, uh, when I told her, I'm going to try to write a contemporary, I'm so scared. I don't know what to do. And she said, well, just think about you and your husband, like think about your conflicts. And oh boy, <laughs> let me tell you, <laughs> I know inside and out. I was often running, um, you know, I know the internal conflicts. I know yeah. the external conflicts. I've lived them. So it was such great advice and so easy to do to take kind of almost caricature, you know, types of us and put them on there. It, it made everything go um, so easily. And it was wonderful advice from a very smart lady. So when you wrote that book, were you intentionally writing a temptation? Yes, I knew, you know, um, I was thinking about what contemporary line I would like. And I went to the used bookstore where they had all the categories, you know, by color coded there and in order. They're so fun to go do something like that. And I was always attracted to those red covers with the, you know, the temptations that said Blaze, because back then Blaze was a subseries of mm -hmm. Temptation. So I loved the Temptation Blazes and, you know, Lori Foster and Carly Phillips were writing those books and I just loved them. So I knew that's, that's what I was going for. Well, you touched on it a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about what did the publishing world look like as author Joanne Rock is entering into it? It, you know, with no online community, it's, I think it's hard for younger people certainly to imagine, you know, how you connected. And it was so hard to connect. I moved around a lot for my husband's job at that time in my life. And um, as we got to each new city, I would look up 
where's the romance community? And you kind of like look it up in a book in the library to find out where the romance writing chapters are. That's how you went about something like that. And you'd find, you know, somebody's phone number and call them up. Where's this group meet to try to meet real people in real time? And thankfully, I was in some cities where they had romance writers, uh, particularly Shreveport, which is where I met Catherine Mann, my, who became my critique partner. Um, but that was a great, very active group. And they had a lot of information, a lot of people that were on the cusp of selling. Um, and, and a lot of us went on to, you know, be names that you would recognize. Beth Cornelson, who writes for um, Intimate Moments, or maybe it's Intrigue now, uh, that she writes for, or mm-hmm. Romantic Suspense, um, and certainly Catherine Mann, my critique buddy. Um, Lenora Worth was there, who writes for Love Inspired. Uh, just so many people. It was it was wow. a great wealth of knowledge, and we all taught each other things as we were on this journey to to get where we wanted to go. That is such a cool story to hear about the the critique group and and all of you, um, or most of you, going on to being published and you know, yeah. being household names almost. It, it was a, it was a really wonderful group, and you know the group meant once a month. But when I was introduced to them all, kind of the she was the president at the time, told me, "Well, we meet once a month, but there's also a bunch of us. If you're you know really interested, you can come. We meet once a week at a Luby's, um, you know, like a Ponderosa type of restaurant. If you don't have a Luby's near you, um, very informally for lunches on a Thursday. So I was there. Oh my goodness, anytime I could so get ready to change you know, exchange chapters with somebody. I loved it that they, that it was a group that was really focused and on the track to get published. They were serious yeah. and it, you know, you get with people like that and they pull you right along with them too. So yeah. we all drove each other forward. That is the dream. <laughs> well, in February, 2002, you released Silk Lace and Videotape with Harlequin's Blaze line. What was it like writing for both Temptation and Blaze at the same time? Dream come true. You know, by the time I sold that first book, I was so ready that, I mean, the stories were just like, you know, flying out of my head. I couldn't write fast enough. I was so excited to have an audience and have an editor that, you know, wanted the stories from me. I I couldn't write fast enough. So to be able to sell to two lines was, I just cried. Like I sobbed with happy tears when that sale call came that they wanted all of these books for me. It was, ah, it's just everything that I had hoped for. So I loved it. And I have um, learned that it is really helpful for me to write in a couple of different formats. And Temptation and Blaze were just a different enough that it was really rewarding for me to be able to write one. Oh, I love this for these reasons. Oh, now I get to go do this. And I love these kinds of books for those reasons. My muse is very happy with that back and forth, getting to mix it up a little bit. Um, So it's always been nice for me to have a couple of different kinds of homes for my voice so that I can do different things and be continually excited about the next project. Well, that was a question that Aaron and I were chatting about last night that we wanted to ask you like offhand after we emailed you the question. Like, what were the similarities and differences between the two? Right. When we first started at Blaze, it was very kind of sex in the city. Um, that okay. was the new show, and that was sort of the voice of Blaze. Ooh, those kinds interesting. Of yeah. So, um, and Temptation was shorter, and I would say, you know, not as edgy um, as what they wanted Blaze to be. And, you know, Sex at the City at the time, that very edgy. Yeah. Um, and with the longer length in Blaze too, we were enjoying the, you know, more relate, you get to do more kind of sub story 
background relationships, um, sisterhood between, you know, heroines that are connecting across stories. I did um, Single in South Beach, a series that I ran both through my Blaze books and Temptation. And I chose like which heroines got which stories according to, you know, who they were and what what types of characters they were. But I really loved the, the sisterhood that I built between these kind of fractured relationships among these women. And they eventually got to be friends and stronger for knowing each other. And that has been a facet of my writing that I've I've put into series after series after series. I love that the healing broken relationships, not just forging a romance, but uh, you know, bringing your whole network up to snuff, sort of to you know have that support around you. I think it's an important part of romance um, is healing conflict resolution. I you know I think we really learn a lot about conflict resolution in romance, and um, not just uh, with a love interest, but with our parents, with uh, friends, you know all kinds of troubled relationships that, you know, you can learn from romance, either how to set boundaries, if you need boundaries, because sometimes you just need a boundary. There's there's as good of a healing as you can get with some relationships. And then other relationships, you know, I think it's helpful to watch the characters work through how can I still have this person in my life and, and take away something meaningful and feel good about the relationship without, you know, letting it cause harm. And and those are great life lessons. And those those are things we need to revisit in our lives again and again and again. I mean, you think you've got it and then you don't, you don't, <laughs> you know, yeah. the relationship gets away from you and you kind of need a refresher or just something to inspire you. And I like to think that romance does that. Okay. I promise this is like one more nerdy historian question. I'm just trying to hey. make things make sense. So, okay, we have temptation mm-hmm. and then sex in the city comes in and boom, we're getting blaze. As a writer of Blaze, did you feel that that line was ending? What was shifting culturally that we no longer needed Blaze? We needed something else, which I'm assuming is Dare. Right. But like, what sh- did you feel like, okay, this is coming to an end? I didn't. I, you know, and I, I still feel like there's a great home for Blaze. And I'm sad that it, you know, it didn't work um, at the end. And I feel like there is still a market for those stories. And I yeah. think- Harlequin was just having an issue with how do we package it in the right way to appeal to the people that want and need these stories, because I think readers would still love those stories today. Absolutely. Um, You know, sometimes for whatever reason, the, you know, the packaging, the way they look, the photos, the where they appear, you know, how they're marketed just doesn't connect with with the audience that they need to be. I'm reissuing a couple of my blazes that I have the rights back to that I wrote in first person. Um, they have some adorable cartoon covers on them. And I'm I'm so excited to republish them this fall. And I know there's a lot of readers who missed them in the time that Blaze wasn't reaching as many readers. And I'm so excited to bring, I, re- I reread them and I thought, these are great. You know, yeah. sometimes <laughs> think, well, she could have had a cell phone. You know, they're so old. My whole mystery could have been solved if she just had her cell phone. So this whole story. <laughs> but this was not the case. I, I read these stories and I thought these are these are sexy. They're fun. They're, you know, I still love these. So I'm excited to reshare them. And I, you know, I think there's still an audience yeah. for them. Absolutely. It's interesting because I feel like for new to category readers, a lot of what I see online is people will recommend a blaze. Right. <laughs> so it's like it's, it's a great it was a great line. And I, I really appreciated the the longer length of a sexy line because I got to do some of the fun family connections, sisterhood connections, 
you know, friends yeah. in a backstory or a secondary plot line um, that I don't necessarily have room for it with shorter, sexy contemporaries. Well, you talked a little bit about historicals. So The Wedding Night <laughs> was your first Harlequin historical. We were like, what line has Miss Joanne Rock not written for at this point? <laughs> so how did writing historical romance come to be? And I saw like we were seeing Harlequin Historical Undone. What mm -hmm. was that? That was a program of their, they were short digital reads um, that were historicals. And I did probably eight of them um, for Harlequin. And I really, you know, it's, al it's almost too short for a story. It's like an incident uh, that's, that's historical. So I would have an event that was going on and a romance would take, would happen during the event. So you're, you know, everything is just kind of in miniature of a larger romance um that that was the undones and then i wrote i believe 10 full-length harlequin historical not medievals they were all medieval um set and that was stories that i loved when i was growing up were a lot of medieval historicals elizabeth lowell um and I tell this story about getting caught in the Newark airport and my flight kept getting delayed and I didn't care. And in fact, I didn't want to get on the plane because I was so engrossed in this Elizabeth Lowell. Like I was in medieval Scotland and I, that's where I wanted to be. Nobody like, cares about the plane. Tell me about the plane. I don't <laughs> <Right>. care. <laughs> I'm in Scotland right now. Okay. Novel. <laughs> and, and I've always thought that it's such a, you know, they say like books are a unique magic that, you know, they transport you and they absolutely do. That plane wasn't taking me any farther than I already, you know, I was already just off in this whole other magical world that the writer created for me. And I've always, it, that's my greatest hope as a writer that, you know, could I ever recreate what Elizabeth Lowell gave to me that day? I can't even imagine yeah. it. You know, I've, yeah. for a hundred books I've been trying, I, I hope that for somebody, they're just so deeply immersed in a world that I've built because I think that's, that's an incredible talent. But yeah, I, I've always loved um, medieval time period. My bookshelves are full of references on medieval everything. So it, it was a joy to to get to sell those stories to historicals and, and connect with historical readers. And historical fans are, are really wonderful fans because they love the world. Um, you know, they come to the romance conferences and they'll dress in the regalia of the time period. I love that. Um, you know, I, as a fan, I'd be right there with them dressed in my medieval garb. And um, so I, I loved getting to write for historical. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because Aaron was like, we have to talk to her about writing medieval historicals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I was curious because, uh, so what, what was the historical line like back then? Because you see, you know, I, I'm a big thrifter. And so you see these, um, you know, historicals, but then they'd have, you know, the subcategory of medieval regency. Uh, I, I don't think they have the subcategories anymore. They just kind of throw it all, all together now. Medievals were never a huge part of historicals, but they, they were always there. Um, you know, if they were doing four a month, they might have one medieval a month or maybe a medieval every other month. You know, Regency has always and forever been a bigger deal. There are just many more readers who love the Regency period. Um, there were, you know, Viking era novels and Scots novels. Those were the other things Scottish. And I did, you know, I wrote some Scots because they're great sellers. Of course, my Battering Ram story was a Scottish story anyway. <laughs> I already had that one. And eventually, believe me, I did get that Battering Ram story in there. Um, but those Scott stories, I would say, and, and Regency were some of the biggest sellers. Oh, Victorians. Um, and Victorians were very big as well. 
but um, you know, Scotland and, and the medieval time is always where I wanted to be. I did write a Viking story. I wrote that for Blaze. Blaze did some time travels and then they yes. also did a historical. So, and I was, I'm always and forever the one to raise my hand and say, oh, it's something weird and different. Like I want to do that. I want to be the one that writes a Blaze historical. I want to write a Blaze time travel. I, I want to do all the things. Yeah. Um, there really isn't any romantic story that I don't want to try to tell at some point. Well, Aaron, can I ask one more random question before you move? Okay. We also saw that you wrote a book. We could not figure out what line it was for, but it was like Mediterranean Nights. Was that like a random series that Harlequin yes. put out? I mean, it looks yes. like Presents, but yep. it's not, is yes. it? Right. It's okay. a, it's kind of fits in nowhere. And okay. the... <laughs> Them making it look like presents was was very much a design choice. They okay. wanted it to look like that. Um, and it was set on a cruise ship in the Mediterranean. So all of the stories were, um, you know, there were recurring characters in the on the ship. And you got some kind of upstairs, downstairs storylines with that. And then also the, the people who were paying for their passage were the, the kind of the more wealthy set. So that was just, a, I think, a 12-book continuity that they came up with in their special releases wow. arm of Harlequin, so that they would dream up projects and then approach authors to participate in it. So yeah. Well, we was- need a 2023 Mediterranean. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it sounds fun, doesn't it? I know. I love continuities. I, and it's fun to see what the Harlequin editors, when they sit down together to say, well, you know, when they dream things up and they mm-hmm. come to us, I think it's so fun to see what comes from the mind of editors. What yeah. you know, what are they looking for? What stories are they craving that we're not already giving them? So I, I like to see what kinds of things come out in the continuities. Well, in 2008, you're still writing for the Blaze line and Harlequin historicals, but also released something to talk about with special edition. What inspired the writing? of this book. That was actually a continuity as well. Um, And I don't know why they chose authors from other lines, but again, I was excited to be able to try out something different. And I grew up in um, near Albany, New York, which is not far from Saratoga Springs, where there is a a racetrack uh, with a storied historic past. And I often worked at the track in the summers in August when it would be filled with racehorses and people from Kentucky and Tennessee and and all over Florida that that had horses. So I was excited to get to do thoroughbred racing. That was the hook of the whole continuity. It was set in thoroughbred world. So my story in particular was set in Kentucky. They assigned that to me, but I did know a thing or two about horses and racetracks and the the people that go there, the jockeys and and what that scene is like because I worked there. And um, so that was fun to be a part of that and get to recreate that. In fact, I did a, oh, an online read that was associated with it. And, you know, for the online read, I could do whatever I wanted as long as it was thoroughbred related. That I set in Saratoga because that was the place that I knew. So that was fun. Well, I mean, we're just digging in deep here because your bibliography continues to get even crazier. So. (laughs) (laughs) Promises Under the Peach Tree (laughs) releases in 2014. And it was your first Harlequin super romance, which our co-host Sarah, that's one of her favorites. For anyone who has yet to read a super romance, how would you describe that line to them? And what did you enjoy about writing for that line? Supers were um, romance with, I think, a strong women's fiction angle because there was so much story in supers. They're longer and they're the most like the least category, the most single title of uh, what Harlequin was offering at that time. 
So they were big books and with a lot of story. And, you know, we weren't given guidelines as far as sensuality levels or things like that. There was just a lot of elbow room for a writer in super romance to take the story where they wanted to go. Highly character driven books. And what I really enjoyed about it, I would... um, I, all five books that I did for Super Romance were connected. They were my Heartache Tennessee books. I came up with a fictional world in Tennessee, set all the books there, um, and I, I really loved them. And each of the stories had a primary romance, and then the secondary storyline were teens. It was teen community and their concerns, and I loved their storylines, and they were interconnected, as were the adult storylines. Um, one of them was a Rita finalist, uh, Dances on under the Tennessee Stars, I think it was called. Um, but I was really proud of all those books. I I just love them. I, I thought that I did a really good job on the books. And I could have written Heartache Tennessee stories forever if yeah. Super Romance had stuck around. But it was a line that, again, was just, you know, it's time ended and Harlequin moved on to other kinds of projects. But I really loved the Super Romance books. I feel like now we get a lot of titles that are romance that really kind of blur the line between romance and women's fiction. Yes. And hearing you talk about super romance, it's like, was that line kind of ahead of its time? Like, Mm. would it work now better than it did when it came out? Right. I mean, I I think there are still some romance readers that don't want to see that. Mm -hmm. But then there's those of us who are like, we love it, you know, this blend of two really good genres. So it kind of just sounds like maybe there are lines, I think, that didn't unfortunately work because they came out way ahead of their time, sadly. Just not at the right time or, Mm -hmm. you know, who knows what happens with that for for why books don't do well. And sometimes, you know, our books don't get on store shelves all the time. Sometimes the retailers will look at them and say, oh, you know, we only have shelf space for five lines. So we pick and choose, Um, you know, and we didn't love this line's covers this month. So, you know, for the rest of the year, they're not in the stores. It's, it can be, you know, really come down to things like that, where it's retail decisions that we don't have any control over and I don't think are necessarily reflective of of buyer's wants. Well, congratulations on publishing your 100th book in June. Thank Rocky you. Mountain Rivals, which is book one in your return to Catamount series um, with Harlequin Desire. Can you share with our listeners what the series is about? Yes, this is, um, it's an inheritance drama and three estranged sisters inherit a property in Colorado. And it's a place where they all spent time in their youth because it was their grandmother's ranch. And it has not been run as a working ranch for a while, but grandma hung on to it and gave it, this is her legacy to give to the girls. And part of her purpose was to bring the her granddaughters back together again, because they were, the family was driven apart by their parents' very messy divorce, and they were kind of forced to take sides, um, or so it felt at the time. It was just a very unhappy growing up environment. So the girls, the sisters have a lot of things to work out. And one by one, they all come back to the ranch to you know, play their role in getting the house ready, the ranch ready to sell. And you know, one by one, they realize how much they don't want to do that um, and, and find meaning in life in Colorado at this Crooked Elm Ranch. But my first heroine, Floor, this is her story. She's the, she's the youngest 
And usually it's the middle child who is the peacemaker. But in my family, Floor serves that role. She's the one that will speak to both of the other ones, unlike the other two who have really dug in hard. Floor has remained open to both sisters. So um, this is her story. Well, her story, Floor's, is her romance with Drake. <laughs> and it is forbidden, off limits. I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but I was like, yeah. this is very juicy. Um, <laughs> but it's also enemies to lovers. Like she, we were chatting about, like I was reading this book. Aaron, had re- Aaron, you'll have to share the title of hers that you read. because We were just talking about like how brilliant these, these your, your oh. writing is. And <laughs> she walks into like a cafe needing a job and it's all going good. And then she finds out, who owns the cafe yep. and like this is all like within the first like three pages and I'm like she just gave me so much life in these three pages like I know so much <laughs> um but definitely the enemies to lovers floor was not happy with seeing the hero no. of this book no. so where did the inspiration for their very juicy off-limits forbidden enemies to lovers romance come from I wanted to write an enemies to lover it is a trope that I have not done often and it's a great trope and I I felt like you know, I challenged myself. I want to do something a little different. And as I set up the series, I knew I wanted the inheritance drama and the estranged sisters. I had all of that. But then I try to make each story different. And I thought one one should be an enemies to lovers. And I just had to think, you know, what that would look like. And I had a lot of fun with the enmity between these two that is deep rooted and, you know, goes away in the course of the novel as you realize the hero's some of his reasoning for his behavior uh, because his enemy behavior, he was purposely distancing him from Mm -hmm. her and he has been for a long time. And there's, there's reasons that I don't want to spoil. And it's also kind of a a juicy story because she was engaged at one point to his younger brother. Yes. (laughs) I didn't want to say it. There's that piece too. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, but it, you know, I, it does all work. Yeah. And it, Aaron, what and was it the makes one you... for such fun tension the whole yeah. way as you, as you go through it. That's um, that prickliness is, it, it's definitely offers a lot of fun spark for the character. So I will mm-hmm. be revisiting enemies to lovers soon. I promise. Okay. I really enjoyed Thanks. it. <laughs> what was the one, Aaron is such a swooner and he was like telling me about one of your books that he read. <laughs> He's like, I can't even form a proper question for it. <laughs> Well, I read A Nine Month Temptation, and it was actually the first Desire book I actually ever oh, bought. So, no uh, yeah, so I obviously I came into romance later in life and, and into category late in life as well. But yep. uh, yeah, I had come across your name quite a few times in my thrifting and everything. So when I was looking for a desire, I was like, oh, well, this Joanne Rock is Yay. has stuff everywhere. So this is bound to be a good one. And it was. It was. Thank but you. the. So that one had this perfect balance of like fighting feelings on both the main characters' parts, but then at the same time, they're they're both just surrendering to him at the same time as well, but yet the conflict's still there, but it doesn't seem out of proportion or out of place. It just, it seemed like such a, as, as a math person, it seems just like such a perfectly balanced equation that you put into this book and this story. I love that book. I loved that series very much. I was so proud of um, all those Brooklyn Nights books. And um, I really, you know, I thought the opening was pretty swoony of Nine Month Temptation oh, as oh, well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a sexy opening and I, I just loved it. 
it. Um, it's it's fun. You know, there's there's all different ways you know, that romance happens. But you know, when the when the sexy parts happen at the beginning, it's you know, it does have to be a, a math equation and a balance because it's it's got to be believable. And we're you know the reader's only just getting to know these people, so to draw them into this sexy scenario kind of quickly, but also give you enough um, empathy with the characters to care about it that it's not just you know that we don't feel distance from it like we're watching some mm-hmm. romantic interlude that would be really awkward. We want to be invested for us to enjoy that to make it feel swoony. You have to feel invested and care about these characters. Um, so I. I was happy how that came out and it developed so quickly for them. I, it was a very kind of shivery scene and um, worked really well. And when the the cover art came out and she's so tremendously pregnant on it, which she is not tremendously pregnant in the book, but that's part of, you know, what we do with the sales. Like that's the hook. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, it's a pregnancy story. She, she's pregnant, um, which is, is always the fun kind of, uh Oh, after your great sexy yeah. time with this guy, you think you'll never see again. <laughs> Whoop, thank goodness. Because that was a mistake. Um, you know, what a huge conflict we now have to resolve. Mm-hmm. So, okay, sorry, another impromptu question here. But the, so doing surprise pregnancy is is obviously more difficult in, in the modern day than it, it is mm-hmm. for like a Regency yes. period, you know, something like that. I really liked how in this one, it wasn't some, you know, oh, the, the, the condom broke or, or something like that. It was just the, oh, no, we just, we just didn't want to that last time. It was just, passion was just flying too. I, I love the honesty about that. It's just like, now we just went for it. Well, it was that last half of sleep time that really got in, really pushed us over the edge. Yes. Yeah. And you're right. Um, To your point, it is difficult with the, you know, the surprise pregnancy stories to make that believable now. And another facet I think is kind of interesting when I moved from historicals to contemporary, the kind of back and forth, you know, pregnancies in historicals are like epic stakes. The the stakes in a, you know, for a pregnancy in a historical are tremendous. It is, it is everything, Um, you know, and, and it's much different now. It's still a big deal. It's still absolutely a huge deal, but it's just, you know, you handle it so much differently now than, um, than in a historical, the way that that plays out, just kind of fun. Well, circling back around, One Colorado Night is a July release and is a reunited romance, which um, which we were so excited for. What do you enjoy about writing reunited romances? It's especially in short contemporary, reunited is is a great trope because it gives you history between the characters. You know, to do a fresh meet, uh, a first meet is more of a challenge in short contemporary because you only have so much space. And to build those conflicts in, you know, for just meeting, there's lots of ways to do it. But it's, you know, when you have the reunion story, um, they've got a history. There's there's things that have happened that you can build on. Um, So I really, I love second chance romances. Um, I think it's highly believable that we don't get it right the first time. That's that is so relatable. And how many of us, you know, can think of a relationship that if you had it to do over, you would do differently, or even, you know, an argument or, or a conflict that, you know, you resolved it one way or didn't resolve it, like, but maybe you could now. Um, I think it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. And I think it's just perpetually interesting to people to read about that opportunity to go back and to try again. I think that's very um, escapist. Yeah. Well, in August, we're getting a Colorado claim. Mm-hmm. So we're getting these books and we see this quite often in Desire. We're getting all three books back to back. 
tell us about the writing. Were you writing these back to back or like some of them at the same time? Like how does a series like this, where we as readers are getting them one month after the other, what's the writing on the other side of it look like? I love it. But I mean, I write them back to back to back and that's how I think about them. So I really enjoy it when Harlequin can release them that way back to back to back, because I know as a reader, that's what I, you know, if I love one, I want the rest immediately. Um, So it, it makes me happy. To, to think that readers can get them quickly. And um, I hope that these are stories that they'll want to go, oh, I must have the next one. I must have the next one. And um, Lark's story is the last one. And it's a divorce story. It's, it's you know, second chance and reunion kind of things, but they had a hard breakup on both sides. And I ha- have not done many divorced couples. Um, and I I really enjoyed their story, the pain of that for both of them, what that was like to fail. And it's not just a failed relationship, it's a failed marriage, which is mm-hmm. which is huge and, and still really hurtful. Um, so th- that felt deeper to me and more angsty to me. And I really connected with Lark, even though she wasn't necessarily at all like me. She's so tough. And um and I loved the toughness in her. I loved writing her character because of that, that she, you know, just comes across as, you know, the, both the sisters are a little intimidated by her. She is just the most <laughs> apt to kick ass and 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 take nothing from anyone. Um, but then as, you know, when I'm writing her, I get to peel away the layers a little bit and see what the secret insides are like. And um, oh, I really enjoyed her story and giving her a character that I felt was super worthy of her, who happens to have been a former hockey player, which was also, you know, that appeals to the romance writer in me. I love sports heroes. I've written a lot of sports heroes. Um, early in my marriage, my husband was a sports editor. And when we moved around often, he was working for different newspapers and I got to go to lots of different, um, professional and, and school level sports and meet athletes, just be very exposed to that world. And, um, so, so I've written baseball heroes, uh, lots of hockey players, you know, I've, I've definitely used that in my stories. Everything that I've had in my life is, it all goes into a book. Well, if a reader was new to your bibliography and asked for one book that you believe they should um, start with, what title would you recommend? Well, now you got me thinking about Nine Month Temptation. I'm, I'm so proud of that series. I, I'm going to recommend that one. I, I think that Brooklyn Nights is a great series, that, that three book series. I think it starts off really strong with a Nine Month Temptation. But I, I will admit, before you put that into my head and I got thinking about that one again. The other one that came to my mind was uh, Claiming His Secret Heir, which is an amnesia story, except the heroine, when we first meet her, she is standing outside the gates of the house that should have been hers. Um, It's now her husband's house. And she is faking amnesia to find out why he didn't come for her when she actually had amnesia. So it's it's got a lot in it. And it's um, I love that opening, like her, you know, behind the gates on the wrong side of the gates of the life that should have been hers. I loved that that opening and, and I was pretty happy with how their story came out. So that's that's another one I would recommend highly. Wow. I'm just imagining like instead of the heroine running away from the castle in the background, right. she's standing <laughs> on the other side of the gate. Look, she's getting the battering ram. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's get into some of our roundout questions. 
early bird or night owl? What time of day do you prefer to write? I'm a midday. I'm I'm more of a night owl kind of person. I'm definitely not early. I cannot, I can't think in the morning. It takes me some time to wake up and for my brain to get going. That being said, when I'm ready to go, I need to capitalize on it then. Um, don't distract me because once it gets to be too late in the day, I also can't really work. Um, so there, there is a high time for creativity and I must capture it when I have it. Do you set daily writing goals? I set like weekly page count that I know I need. This week, I must have X pages. And that leaves me room for if today just doesn't feel like a day, oh, I missed my high creative period today, <laughs> then it, you know nothing is going to happen. That's okay, as long as I still meet the weekly goal. And that feels a little bit easier for me than a deadline every single day. Yeah. Okay. So are you writing long-handed or do you use a particular computer program for writing? I just write everything in Word. I Probably my first 15 novels I wrote on an Alpha Smart. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh it was a very super simple word processor that gave you three lines of text in black and white. It ran on, I think, four AA batteries. It never ran out of battery. Like those four AA's powered it for a year. It saved everything. Like it just automatically assumed if you wrote it, it would save it. So I, and I went to work on that because when I first started writing, I would get too involved in massaging sentences. Like when I was stopping to think, I would look back at what I wrote and say, well, I'll just tweak this. Well, I'll just tweak that. Instead of thinking about, you know, forward momentum, I was, you know, putting on your editor hat is a different thing than the writer hat. So that was wasting a lot of my time. And the Alpha Smart not being able to edit, you know, you it's just all it. I can do is type on it. And I yeah. can't really see what I've typed except for this last couple of lines. It really helped me um, to focus more and there's no internet on it like all you can do is type so there's no going to twitter there's you know no going to check anything mm -hmm. online or seeing if my friend answered my email nope the only this tool is only good for writing so that is so cool i i wrote quite a few books on that before i trusted myself enough oh, okay you can go back to a real computer and and you know now i've got the process down better you find yourself stuck on a scene uh, who do you call or what do you do I still call my critique partner, Catherine Mann, and say, I don't know what I'm doing. And she'll say, oh, Joanne, don't you remember? You wanted his conflict to, you know, and then she comes up with this great thing that I don't remember was ever part of my thinking, but, you know, she gives me credit for, for so much more. But, you know, she reads my chapters as I write them and I read her chapters as she writes them. So we know one another's stories very well. And, um, you know, we, we've just been together for long enough that that's such an easy call to make. And sometimes I just have to, um, I have to give in and call her because sometimes I think, oh, I don't want to use that crutch. You know, I don't, don't yeah. want to have to make the Kathy <laughs> man call. I'll be able to figure this out. But just so much quicker if I give in and I just say, Kathy, what was I? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. I can't figure out why, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, either she'll give me credit and say, oh, Joanne, you are going to blah, blah, blah. Or she'll she'll come up with something better and great and help me brainstorm it. Or sometimes just me articulating the question answers it. You know, by yeah. the time I, I get to the end of explaining it to her. So that's that's kind of a fun. It's a wonderful, wonderful partnership to have. Well, we read on your website that you have two keeper shelves. Mm -hmm. We'd love to know three titles okay. on these 
two keeper shelves? Well, you know, my actual keeper shelves are my old print books. So on my physical keeper shelves, I have like Susan Elizabeth Phillips, Breathing Room, um, Teresa Medeiros, fairest of them all. I probably have every Teresa Medeiros and every Susan Elizabeth Phillips book, actually. Um, My Elizabeth Lowell, medieval that I fell in love with. But today I read so much on Kindle and like Tessa Bailey's everything. I love Tessa Bailey. Um, I've got her Crossing the Line series and Line of Duty series. Love all those books. Wow. My modern yeah. day keepers. Well, what is one hill you will wholeheartedly die on? Romance is not a guilty pleasure. Um, that's Very the hill nice. I am dying on. There's yeah. nothing guilty about yeah. it. It is soul nourishing self-care. It is love affirming. It's relationship affirming. And it is a wonderful, healthy reading choice that you should be very proud of. I know I'm very proud of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you decide you want takeout for dinner tonight. Where do you order from and what's your order? I am so easy. I go to my local Wawa. Do you live where there's a Wawa? No. Oh, <laughs> it will come to your town one day. How? What? Where in the country are you? I'm in San Antonio. Oh, okay. Um, so there's yeah. not Stewart's either because I was going to compare it to in Northern New York. We have stores that are Stewart stores. It's a convenience store slash gas station, but I'm telling you, their <laughs> food is really good. Okay. <laughs> Anybody else who lives near a Wawa will tell you there's no shame in picking up Wawa. They have great quesadillas and they make your food right there for you. What is the first song on the soundtrack to your life? This is a hard one. I, you know, Shaka Khan's whole album, I Feel For You, is kind of the, was the seminal album of my existence. But I think I'd have to go with Lorena McKinnett's um, Lady of Shalott. I love, I'm, one of my modern obsessions is pre-Raphaelite paintings. I have lots of versions of the Lady of Shalott hung up all over my house. Um, one of my happiest memories of a date night with my husband was going to see a Waterhouse exhibit and all of his gorgeous artwork. Um, and I, I listen to Lorena McKennett a lot when I write. So um, that song is high up on my list of, of, you know, every year in my Spotify unwrapped, Lorena McKenna is all over it. <laughs> so tell us one of the toughest pieces of advice you've ever received. You know, I've never liked uh, write the book of your heart because I feel like that's so limiting and so much pressure when I have a thousand books of my heart. All of my books are from my heart. And I, I've always felt like that was a very confusing piece of advice for writers. It's as if there is some, um, you know, it's kind of like the term soulmate, which I, I also don't love that there's this one person that's on, you know, the only person in the world that you could possibly love and how on earth will I ever find this one soul. Um, I, I feel like, to, you know, to write the book of your heart feels, that feels limiting to me. Maybe some yeah, people just limiting. have one book in their heart, but I have so many stories just exploding out of my brain that I can't wait to share. Um, so I always found that kind of tough to, you know, what if I don't find the book of my heart? I'll never get published. What if I don't have it? <laughs> no, what if yeah. it's not there? Well, knowing what you know now, what would you go back and tell yourself at the beginning of your writing career? Relax. <laughs> It'll happen. I, you know, it was, I wish that I had enjoyed the journey more. And I'm sure a lot of people would say the same, like, you know, to climb that hard hill was a lot of hard work and, and a lot of pressure and a lot of stress that I put on myself. I, I wanted so badly to sell that first book that, you know, I feel like it just, it occupied so much headspace and, and took up a lot of stress 
in my life. And I wish I could have kind of relaxed and breathed through it a little bit more to enjoy all of the amazing aspects of it. I look back now and can enjoy it, but I wish I could have enjoyed it a little bit more at the time because that's just, you know, your head down, running, 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 you know, so hard that you want this goal that it's, you know, stop and enjoy the journey. Like every now and again, just, you know, look back where you've come. Don't, don't be so focused all the time on where you're going. Look at what you've done. Look at what you have. Look at this moment, like right here, right now, how good it is and how much fun it is to sit at this park with, you know, Catherine Mann, a, you know, friend that neither of us are published yet, but there we are with our seven kids between us at a park with McDonald's talking, 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 talking about every new book that's out, going to the used bookstore. And that's our, our fun girl date. Um, and just what a joy and what a, what a gift that day is, whether anything comes of this dream of publishing or not, enjoy the moment. Wow. I'm just, I'm so tickled just thinking of Joanne Rock and Catherine Mann sitting at the park. Just, <laughs> no, yeah. and random people, yeah. peasants you walking by. One day, one day. <laughs> Yep, dreaming big. Oh, to just res random like random people walking by, having no idea that this is like Joanne Rogg and Catherine Mann in the park with McDonald's and kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Say, mommy, can we please go home now? Yeah. <laughs> when the moms want to stay right. at the park, you know, the talking is good. <laughs> Go down five more times. <laughs> yeah. So lastly, where can everyone follow you online? Um, my website, of course, is joannerock.com. I'm on Facebook still at um, author Joanne Rock and Twitter and Instagram. I am Joanne Rock 6. There are other Joanne Rocks out there, but I am Joanne Rock Six on both of those. So, and I okay. do Pinterest boards as well. Um, and I think that's a J Rock um, on, on Pinterest. But I do try to keep up with boards. I love that visual medium. So I try to create that world. I know I really enjoy when I find authors who have visual recreations of their books on Pinterest. So, and I try to do the same for as many books as I can, just, you know, the dresses that my characters were wearing because they're real gowns. Like I go on Netta Porter and choose exactly what they're wearing. And I shop on realtor.com for my characters' houses. So, you know, wow. you can see the house and it's helpful for me to know exactly what it looks like. And there's great descriptions of all the rooms. I can see it right there because, you know, I look on Realtor. So I, I put those on my Pinterest page along with external shots of the, the setting and, and key pieces that played in a role in the novel. That is so cool. Well, listeners, make sure you check the show notes because we're going to have all the places that you can keep up with thank the you. Joanne Rock. So make sure you check down there. Again, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. This has just been a dream come true. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure for me. I love talking romance. You do a great job. I really love the show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, please oh, come you. back. You know, we have this yes. podcast. You're thank Joanne you. Rock. You're always welcome. Thank so, you. <laughs> listeners, Aaron and I will chat with you in our next episode. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. Bye.